Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. On November 19th of 1863, Abraham Lincoln delivered his most famous speech as president. This speech was delivered at the Union of the, or Cemetery at the Battle of Gettysburg. If you haven't figured out by now, I like the history of civil war because I've used many different illustrations. But the speech here was meant to mourn the loss of soldiers that died, but that speech ended up becoming one of the greatest speeches in all American history that helped change a nation. The Gettysburg Address embodies what our country stands for by reminding a divided nation of the principles in which it was founded. Through this address, Lincoln was able to convey a message of hope and determination when it was hard, honestly, to find that during that particular time. Abraham Lincoln states, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives that this nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men living and dying who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, which is irony in and of itself. But it can never forget what, we, what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they fought here, have thus so far nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not be dead in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. The Gettysburg Address completely changed the course of the Civil War by redefining the cause to expand freedom to all people, reuniting as a nation. What Abraham Lincoln said that day was nothing new. It was something in which was said from the very beginning when our nation was founded, but he used what the principles of our nation in being founded with to really remind the people that we are here living for a far greater purpose than what's being fought here in the Civil War. And those words live in empathy. Although the, the Gettysburg Address is now remembered, or a short speech, is remembered as one of the greatest speeches in American history. As we approach our text this morning, the Apostle Paul delivers his final encouragement to the church of Thessalonica. And just like these final words of, uh, of, during the Civil War by Abraham Lincoln, the final words of the Apostle Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians provides a much-needed reminder to this church that was struggling in their journey to follow the Lord. So take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I do pray that this uh, series has been an encouragement to you as it's been to one in my heart. Uh, this is not a deep book by any means. It's not like we're going through the book of Romans by any stretch of the imagination. It's a simple book. And what I mean by that is this, there's not a lot of deep theological concepts, but it's an encouraging book. 
As we understand, the Apostle Paul writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica writes it for the purpose of really encouraging them to keep going in the faith as a result of their misunderstanding regarding the second coming of Christ. They believed that because Christ was coming back at any point, they had permission to really um, be lax in their Christian growth. And so the Apostle Paul writes this book for the purpose of encouraging them to keep going. Don't give up. Keep fighting until Christ returns. Because the fact that he's not here yet means that he's not through with the gospel being spread throughout this world. And so do not give up. The overall structure of this letter... Is, is, is the first uh, two chapters really being the, or first three chapters being the encouragement aspect, the final two chapters being the encouragement. And so far what we've discovered is the Apostle Paul honing in really on the sanctification aspect, the sanctification being the process of becoming more like Christ. He talks about how purity plays a role in that. He talks about uh, the relationships amongst the church, of course, and then he also clarifies the misunderstanding regarding the return of Christ. But as we get into these final verses here, uh, these verses really, as one commentator describes, provide the foundational principles for spiritual life. The title of our message this morning within this study is Paul's Final Encouragements. Paul's Final Encouragements. Now, every single pastor has their quirks. I certainly do not because I don't do anything that's out of the ordinary. But Garrett tended to remind me of that a few weeks ago by creating this game called Pastor Bingo. And uh, if you've ever played bingo before, it's like, you know, you say the number and they put the spots. Well, Pastor Bingo, I think he got it from a Christian comedian, is basically like different quirks that the pastor does. And if he does it during the sermon, you uh, highlight it, right? And whoever gets them all done. And that was a joke that he hopefully only sent out to a couple of people. But every pastor has their quirks, right? Some, some pastors smack their lips when they talk. And some other pastors say amen every few sentences. And other pastors say hallelujah, right? Well, I think the cruelest thing that a pastor does is he says, in conclusion, right? And then he adds on another 15, 20 minutes. When you thought that the message was going to wrap up, he ends up, really, that's like the first half of his message, in conclusion, and then he continues on. Well, the Apostle Paul literally says, in conclusion, and he means it with these first, first few verses. It's like he stretches chapter 4 and into chapter 5 by talking about just a few points, and then it's almost like the Apostle Paul's like, all right, just real quick before I close, here's a whole bunch of other points, bam, 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 and rapid fire for you to follow. And so that's what we're going to do our best to dissect here this morning, is look at all these different points, and uh, as the Apostle so Paul lays it all out. What we're going to see in, in verses 12 through 22 is a set of encouragements that deal with both the church life and the Christian's personal life. In verses 12 and 15, or through verses 12 and 15, the Apostle Paul addresses the church life. How do Christians interact with the leadership and how do they interact with each other? And then in verses uh, uh, 16 through 23 or 22, the Apostle Paul addresses the personal life of a Christian. And so let's start with the church life. Number one, let's look at the Paul's encouragement regarding the church life. Paul spends in verses 12 through 15 speaking about those two different relationships, as I mentioned earlier. In verses 12 through 13, though, those two verses, the Apostle Paul addresses the church's relationship to the leadership. So first off, let's examine the treatment towards the leadership. Now, I'm going to admit to you, this is a little awkward for me to share with you because the Apostle Paul is telling you how to treat me and the spiritual leadership. And so take it for what it's worth. These are the Apostle Paul's words. These aren't my words and saying, respect me in this position, okay? We're just going to look at what the Apostle Paul says regarding the church's leadership and treatment towards the leadership. 
The Apostle Paul begins in verse 12. He says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And the Apostle, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is commanding the congregation to honor the church leadership that works tirelessly to care for the congregation. And I have often heard people joke, and it hurts me deeply, just joking, that I've often heard people say that the pastor works one day a week, Sunday mornings for a few hours, and they spend the whole day or the whole week working for those few hours. And uh, TJ has offered, it said that multiple times, I know he's joking, uh, but I, I know that all joking aside, some people do think that. And can I be the first one to tell you that that is not all of what the pastor does, right? Usually when people go to work, uh, for the most part, I understand that different professions uh, go beyond the nine to five job. I got it. But there are a lot of jobs in which you check in at nine o'clock in the morning and you do all the work there and then you check out at five o'clock. And for the most part, you get to go home and your mind is checked out of work for the most part, right? I understand some jobs are different. All right, some jobs that are salary, you work a lot more than that. But as a pastor, um, you don't have that option. There's not the luxury of being able to go to work and working from 9 to 5 and then more or less checking out. Okay, for the pastor, even though they may not be in the office from 9 to 5, the pastor never checks out of their job. When working with people, when working with a congregation, you feel the burdens of the congregation. Now, I have not been a pastor for long, less than, or a senior pastor, less than five years, but in those short years, I can tell you from personal experiences some of the most difficult things about being a pastor. I do not say this to gain your sympathy at all. I'm just telling you to help you gain a little bit of an understanding of exactly what the pastors deal with to help you in your prayer life. First off, I struggle with not being able to provide all the answers for those that are struggling. There are some that I've walked through trials with. I'm currently walking through trials of some that are a part of this church family. And I don't have the answers for you and how to solve or, or the answers regarding that encouragement of that trial. The Bible does. But when somebody's caught up in the middle of something, I can share scriptures within, uh, you know, as far as what the Bible says, but as far as like the timing and when the trial is going to be over with and what the end result is going to look like, I don't have the answer for that. And the Bible doesn't have the answer for that. And I'm going to be honest with you. The only thing we can do is trust the Lord. But as a pastor and saying that to someone, sometimes you feel like you're not, you're not really helping them. Trust the Lord. Even though that's the best thing that we can do, the pastors feel that burden. And so there's sometimes where you approach me and I don't always have the answers because the scriptures don't have the answers for the exact thing that you're going through at that exact moment. We have principles that can bring us encouragement. But as a pastor, we wish we had all the answers, but sometimes we just don't. Number two, I mentioned this before, I struggle with the tension of God and pleasing God and pleasing man. Parting of being a pastor ultimately is you're there to please God. And sometimes what man wants is not what God wants. And so you want to help man. And honestly, human nature, I think for, for probably more for some than others, is you want to please man as well. And there's a tension there. God, is this really what you want this person to do? They really seem like they're upset about it. But ultimately, we please God. But there is a tension there. You don't want to offend somebody. You don't. Now, you share the gospel praying that they won't get offended, but when they do, you hurt by that. And so there's a tension between struggling uh, with pleasing God and pleasing man, but we always seek to please God over man. But number three, I struggle, and that's, I think a lot of pastors can deal with this. I do struggle with getting 
close to people when you understand that that person could at any point get offended and leave or move away. All right, now let me go ahead and clarify this. There's been times in my short ministry in which we've gotten really close to people and we do that. We pour our lives into someone, right? As a pastor, a good pastor will be somebody that literally pours their life into you. They feel emotionally connected to you. They feel, they feel spiritually connected to you. And so they pour their life into you. And oftentimes their family goes along with them regarding that. And you can share the gospel with somebody and human nature tends to buck against that at times. And there's been times where I've shared the gospel. There's been one particular time where somebody didn't like what I had to say, stood up in the middle of the service, looked me in the eye and walked out. Okay. Pastors feel that. I've also come to grips that we live in more of a transient area, being in a college town, and there's been a lot of people whom I've gotten really close to, and they've moved away, and we praise the Lord that God is following their leading, but pastors feel that, right? And so you want to pour your life into someone, and you do, but you always have in the back of your mind that at some point they could be transitioning out, and so there's a temptation to maybe even withhold something because you want to protect yourself. Okay, That's a struggle that a lot of pastors have. Well, I also struggle with the final thing here. This is probably the biggest thing I struggle with. I struggle with the sense of failure when the congregation or sheep turns their back on God. As a pastor, you want more than anything else, you want the congregation that God has entrusted you with to follow the Lord, to passionately follow the Lord, to come in the saving knowledge of the Lord first and foremost, and then to give their lives to the Lord and follow them. And when somebody falls into sin, It's hard for a pastor to not take that personally at times because sometimes pastors feel as if they failed in leading that person because of their choice to fall into sin. And we understand that it's not the pastor's fault that a person fell into sin. But when we see somebody walk away from the Lord, we feel that. And there's been multiple different times in which I've woken up in the middle of the night tossing and turning because I've been wrestling alongside the people in our church's burden with them not knowing what the answer is. And so I'm praying along with them. I've been praying in the car and there is a struggle. And again, I share that for this reason. A pastor's job does go beyond Sunday mornings, but I also want you to understand we desperately need your prayer. I look at every single person that's ever come to our church and those that join our churches. That is who God has designed specifically for me and for Pastor Bryce to minister to. And we're not here to control anybody's life, but God has brought them to our church so that I can speak life and encouragement to them. And so we take that very seriously and very personally. But you also have to understand that Satan knows that as well. And he's going to do whatever he can to chip away at the relationship between the pastor and the congregation. So for this reason in verse 12, the apostle Paul says, recognize those who labor among you. Recognize meaning honor those who labor among you. There's a lot that's happening behind the scenes. There's a great spiritual battle that is taking place that many can't see. Paul says, honor them, recognize them, pray for them. But as he continues on and and focusing in his verse, he adds in verse 13, esteem them very highly and love for their work's sake. And I would say that from personal experience, loving your pastor is the number one priority for the congregation when it comes to the treatment of their leadership. You love them. You love them, and I praise the Lord for the people that we have at this church because we feel that love. When the congregation loves their pastor, everything else will fall into place. But notice what Paul says regarding the basis of the love for that pastor. He doesn't say love the pastor because they're a cool individual. 
I understand some pastors are probably a little bit harder to get along with than others. I know that sometimes my uh, sense of humor may not sit well with other people. I got it. But the Apostle Paul says you love the pastor for what reason? For their work's sake. What is the Apostle Paul saying? The Apostle Paul is saying don't love your pastors based upon specifically who they are, but based upon what they do. They are doing the Lord's work. They have been called and commissioned by God to lead God's people. Therefore, love the pastor for the work that they are doing. You say, well, how can I show love to my pastor? And I believe that it can be applied in three ways. Number one, I've said it multiple times, pray for your pastor. Pray for your pastor because they are doing the Lord's work. And because they're doing the Lord's work, they face constant attacks from Satan. But not only the pastor, also the kids and the wife. The, the Satan seems to do whatever he can to get in there and he will attack the family. And so we beg, and this goes for Pastor Bryce and Jane as well, we beg for you to pray for us and pray for their protection. Number two, support the pastor and the ministry. And again, I alluded to this. There's already examples of people supporting the ministry. We've got all these people that are filling in for the first time and serving. We praise the Lord for that. But you're supporting uh, by, uh, yes, giving and, and attending and, and all those things. But we're not ultimately doing it for the pastor. We're ultimately doing it for God because God has set that pastor over that church to be able to minister in that community. So yes, we are ultimately doing it for God, but we're doing it also for the church and the congregation. But number three, here's another way that you can show the pastor love. You love each other with Christ-like love. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 13. He adds this at the very end. He says, be at peace among yourselves. One of the biggest reasons that the pastor, and you, I mean, you could do a research and look this up, but one of the number one reasons why a pastor's uh, resign is because of discouragement that they have ha, that has uh, come about because of the fighting that happens within the congregation. Either the congregation is upset about the pastor with something, or they're upset with each other. The Apostle Paul says, one of the ways you can show love to your pastor, love each other. Be at peace with each other. Don't let there be fighting amongst the congregation. If there's an issue, take care of it according to the Matthew chapter 18 principle but be at peace with each other and that is how you can show love if you can remember the encouragements this way the pastor has one of the most dangerous jobs known to mankind although not physically dangerous i don't know too many pastors that are hurt physically by being a pastor but it is one of the most dangerous jobs when it comes to the spiritual danger that a pastor faces. Paul says back in verse 12, recognize those who labor among you. And then what does he add? And are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The pastor faces two things. First off, they face accountability from the Lord and how they lead and love the congregation. All right. When we stand before the Lord, the Bible says that the pastor has to stand before the Lord and has to give an account for how he led that church ministry. But then the second thing that the pastor faces, and that is this, it's attacks from Satan in doing the Lord's work. As I mentioned earlier, Satan wants to do whatever he can to, to remove the shining light that is here at the chapel. Now, I'm saying it's all dependent upon the pastor. I'm not saying that. I'm not, we're not the reason why the church is a shining light, but there's a big portion to that because God has equipped us to be the leaders of the church. And so I say all that to say this, the Apostle Paul says, remember them, honor them, pray for them, support the pastor. Okay, that's the church's treatment towards the leadership. Secondly, we look at the treatment towards the brethren. Okay, now he focuses on the individuals, right? Each other. 
Paul continues in verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Now, again, the, the next set of verses here are like rapid-fire points. We're not going to do this huge, long uh, speech regarding each one. We're going to just kind of talk about them briefly. And so the first thing the Apostle Paul tells the people to do is warn those who are unruly. Now, your versions may say something a little bit different, but basically that word unruly means those that are not working, those that are idle, those that are lazy, those that aren't doing doing anything. The Apostle Paul apparently ran into an issue with the church of Thessalonica in which there were some that were not working. They were just living off the goodness of other Christians within the church. The Apostle Paul says, warn them. Well, warn them for what? Warn them to get back and work because the Lord is coming back soon. And so therefore, you don't have time to waste. Go out there and do something for the Lord. So he says, warn them, those that are idle, those that are lazy. But the second thing that he says to do as he says to, um, I want to make sure I have my notes here. Okay, the second thing that he says to do is comfort those that are faint-hearted. There are some that don't need to be hit upside the head. They just need a hug. There are some that are weaker in the faith, and they are struggling. There are people in our church that are struggling that you may not even be aware, and that's okay because it may not be your particular concern, but I sell that to say this. You be kind to everyone in our church. You love and you encourage everyone because you never know what that person is going through. Come to church on Sunday mornings should be a time of healing and a time of, of, of just uh, spiritual refreshment. And we as a church body should be doing that for one another. And so he says, you uh, uplift the faint-hearted. Thirdly, Paul says, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. Everybody grows at different rates. There's some that are saved earlier on in life, and they've had a lot of time to grow. There's others that were saved later on in life, and so therefore their spiritual growth rate is, is, is not as fast as some others. It's like the seeds in our garden back at home. There are certain seeds that produce quicker than others, and so my wife has to show certain amount of attention to those seeds that take a little bit longer in growing than others. We do that same thing as well with the Christian body. We don't get frustrated when somebody doesn't get a spiritual concept right away. We're patient with them. We're kind with them. And we pray with them. We lovingly come alongside of them. But fourthly, the Apostle Paul says, don't get vengeance on others that have wronged you. Now, in verse 15, Paul says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both yourselves and for all. He's moving beyond the church now to everyone. That is a hard one to do. But the Apostle Paul says to move on and no one render evil to anyone, but be good to all. Always pursue that which is good for yourselves and for all. Now the question is, what is good? What do you mean by this good that I'm supposed to pursue? What is, what is considered good? Well, Really, honestly, it's anything that matches the character of God. One way to determine whether something is good is to ask yourself, would God be okay or bless what I'm about to do or say or think regarding this person? Can God bless it? Would God be okay with it? I can't answer that for you. You have to come to the conclusion of that by comparing the principles of God's word and his character. But if it is something that God can bless, then it's good. Then therefore, go through with that. Jesus takes this command even further in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 through 40, and he says, But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other and him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, he says, let him have your cloak also. 
Well, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that if somebody creates a, or commits a criminal activity not to address them? No, 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 no. You still have to address them and go to the law regarding that. But if we can sum it up this way, Jesus says to lay down your rights as a Christian for the sake of the gospel. What's interesting is when I was a youth pastor, we always had a conversation with our teenagers, and they would always want to focus on, like, Christian liberty, right? Like, what's my rights as a Christian? What can I do to get by? Like, why is that your focus when it comes to spiritual growth? Is like, what can I do to get by? Like, what is my right as a Christian? If I want to do this, then I'm going to do it, right? Well, nowhere in Scripture does it say that we have any rights as a Christian other than what God gives us through His grace. Like, if you want to point to me in Scripture... Other than what God affords to us through his grace and the grace of his son, point to me specific things that we as a Christian, based upon our merit, have a right to do. We don't have anything. And so the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians, and Jesus says here, when it comes to treating other people, lay down your rights for the sake of the gospel. Don't respond back to them in a sinful way. Remember, especially, obviously, if they're unsaved, they can't respond to you in a spirit-filled way. They don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. And so look beyond the personal offense that we experience now to the true issue, and that true issue is they need eternal life. They need salvation. And so I'm going to lay down my rights for the sake of the gospel, and that's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, um, keeping the importance and the urgency of the gospel of the forefront will help all of us pursue what is good for all. And so the Apostle Paul talks about the church life, but as he continues, he goes now into the Christian life in verses 16 through 22. And again, these are like rapid fire, one after the other. Now, what Paul does in verses 16 through 18 is he deals more or less with the attitude of the Christian. This is how you need to adjust your attitude because your attitude will change the outlook of your life. He says, first off, always rejoice. Always rejoice. Have you ever met someone that's, that never seemed to be bothered? I think of a lady that was one of the pastor's wives of the church I grew up in. Her name was Pam Colton. Pam Colton, Janie knows her well. Pam Colton was the most joy-filled lady. This lady had cancer, walked through the shadows of cancer, and I never, never saw her not having a smile on her face. Think about Miss Lisa, who can share that the same way, and, 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 and how the joy of the Lord just shines through them. The Apostle Paul says, always rejoice, no matter what happens in your life. And that can be difficult. We are still human beings. Our emotions tend to um, uh, go, go down the, the direction of, 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 of other things, and, and, and we can kind of get caught up in the negativity. Now, this is completely not part of the message here, but it goes along perfectly. Yesterday I was scrolling through Instagram, and I saw this guy by the name of Justin Prince. Have, have you ever heard of his name before? I don't know who he is. I think he might be a psychologist or something. I don't think he's a Christian by any means. But he's doing a lecture at, at, at one of the college universities, and he said that negative thinking is a result of a survival mechanism that human beings have. And he used the example of cavemen, and I'm not here to talk about whether or not they were cavemen. I would tend to believe that there were not, because you look at Adam and Eve. But anyway, uh, he said that if you were to go back to the age of the cavemen, right, they walk outside and they see... Uh, this beautiful creation, the first thing that they're thinking is not the beautiful creation. They're thinking about all the different dangers that they may come and experience. And then you use the example of us driving through, uh, through, through town. And we say, uh, you know, we're driving 80 miles an hour down the road and we see this, this beautiful sunset and we don't pay anything attention to it. But the moment that there's an accident or something on the side of the road, we slow down and we look at it because our mind is drawn to something that is negative. 
All right, he uses that to say that negativity helps us with our survival mechanism. And then he says, and a way to overcome that is you begin to think positively. And then he uses the phrase, he says, don't complain. Stop complaining. <laughs> Why do you think the Apostle Paul says here, always rejoice? Always rejoice. He's a guy that does not claim to be a Christian, is saying exactly what the Word of God says. He's just saying it from a secular standpoint. Why? Because it works. It works. Always rejoice. And then the Apostle Paul adds here, persistently pray. Now, you've heard that phrase before, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Like, always be in a state of prayer? Like, should you be praying right now while we're preaching? Like, it's impossible. You can't pray while you're sleeping. What does he mean by that? It's having this constant attitude of prayer. It is not looking at prayer as being segmented parts of your day. You pray before your meal, you pray in the morning, you pray before you go to bed, but always being in this attitude of prayer. He says you persistently pray, first off. And we see examples of that. We see it in Luke. We see it with the persistent neighbor knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking, and finally the neighbor says, fine, you can have the bread that you want. And Jesus applying that to our persistence and asking the Heavenly Father for the Holy Spirit and how he will give it to us. But he says persistently pray. And then he also says to, uh, to, to pray um, persistently and also to pray fervently. Obviously, you're, you're, you're never giving up in your prayer life and you're praying with everything that you possibly have. Because what happens, like if we were persistently praying, is it so that we can remind God of our prayer requests? Like why are we commanded over and over again to persistently pray? It's not that God needs to be reminded of it. It's to change our hearts in that persistent prayer. Because the more you persistently pray for something, the more you desire for God to speak, and the more in tune you will be to the will and the leading of God. So if you have something on your heart, something on your mind, and you pray for it once, like it's out of your mind probably later on in the day. And you're not seeing different things that are happening in your life in which God is leading to you to, in regards to the answer to that prayer. But if it's constantly on your mind over and over and over again, and you're constantly lifting it up to the Lord, what's going to happen is your heart becomes more sensitive to the leading of God, but it also becomes more focused on really truly desiring God and seeing what God has for us. And the things that are happening in our life, we see that that is God's leading in regards to the answer to that prayer. And God may not answer it right away. But he says, persistently, persistently pray. Always be in this attitude of prayer and giving up everything up to the Lord. But let her see. He moves on to persistently pray. He says, always give thanks. It's a lot like the always rejoicing, but it's always giving thanks. It's God, no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to recognize that as being your sovereign will. And so therefore, God, thank you for it. Many of you know Helen Keller uh, from history books. Uh, she was born both deaf and blind. She could not see her loved ones. She could not hear her loved ones. But she says this, so much has been given to me that I have no time to ponder that which I do not have. Christian lady, what a Christ-centered outlook. So much has been given to me, I do not have time to ponder that which I do not have. The Apostle Paul says, always give thanks. and the good times, give thanks. and the bad times, give thanks. And then he transitions now into verses 19 through 22 by focusing really more on the spiritual foundation of the Christian. He says in verse 19, don't quench the spirit. What does that mean? Don't quench the spirit. The Bible talks about two different things. It talks about quenching the spirit and grieving the spirit. They're two different things. The phrase grieving the spirit comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. Grieving the spirit is to make someone or make the Holy Spirit sad 
and sorrowful. Somebody uh, says, I'm grieving over this person or over this situation. I'm sorrowful over this situation. Well, how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? If you want to think about it this way, it's doing things that we know we should not do as Christians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 31 says, Therefore put away lying, and let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Let him steal, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands that which is good. But he have something to give him who is in need. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace upon the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? By lying by saying things that are not true, by stealing, basically by doing anything that we know we should not do that's grieving. Well, what is quenching the Holy Spirit then? If you were to think about that phrase quenching, quenching is to put a fire out. If you were to think about a fire that you build in your backyard, you want to put that fire out, you take a bucket of water and you quench the fire. You're dousing the flame of that fire. Well, how do we do that with the Holy Spirit? That is by not doing things in which the Holy Spirit is urging you to do. You are stifling the flame of the Holy Spirit in your life to share the hope of Christ with other people. All right, the Holy Spirit may be leading you to do something, and you're saying, no, I'm not going to do that because uh, I'm comfortable here. Or the Holy Spirit may be leading you or urging you to share the gospel with someone, and you say no to the Holy Spirit. That is quenching the Holy Spirit. You are stifling the flame of the Holy Spirit in your life, and the Apostle Paul says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Because if you were to grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, it's going to prohibit your spiritual growth. So he says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. But as he continues to move on, he says, receive God's word. Paul says, do not despise prophecies. Prophecies in this particular context is regarding to God's written word. It's the truth of God's word. There are no new prophecies today that are outside God's word. We have the complete revelation here in front of us. The Bible says here to receive it. When we come to church on Sunday and we gather as a congregation, we are hearing the preaching of God's word. When we read, read through it, our own personal time, we are reading the truths of God's word. Paul says, hear it, read it, and receive it. In other words, apply God's word to your life. But I've said this time and time again, and if you go to a church that consistently um, preaches, but the Bible's never referenced, or the Bible's never opened, don't go to that church anymore. Because you're just hearing the opinion of a man. The Bible says in verse 21, test all things and hold that what is good. Hold fast what is good. What is he saying here? It goes back to John chapter 4 where he says, test the spirits. You're taking what you've heard from the preacher, from the pastor, from others as well, and you're putting that through the filter of God's word to make sure that that truly is the truth. You are testing it. And that's why I've said multiple times, I invite you to bring your Bible. I'm, I am asking you to bring your Bible with you so that you can follow along with me and you're testing what I have to say through the lens of God's word because that's where the spiritual growth takes place. You receive God's word. And then the final point that he says here is you abstain from evil. You receive God's word, you abstain from evil. Look down at verse 22. The apostle Paul says, abstain from, what does he say? Every form of evil. Why does he have to add that word every form? Couldn't he just say evil? 
because he's going beyond just simple evil in and of itself. Obviously, as Christians, we should abstain from evil. But he's also, he's also highlighting for us the necessity of us maintaining our personal testimony with others that may perceive us as doing things that are evil. So, well, Pastor Brandon, we shouldn't care what other people think. As Christians, we don't really have that luxury completely, okay? Because, again, as I mentioned earlier, our number one priority as Christians is to honor and glorify God, but also to share the gospel and live out the gospel for others to see. And so if we are doing things that are shady, if we're uh, participating in things that are not necessarily the best uh, uh, thing for us that may not be evil in and of itself, we have to step back and say, is this really convincing someone that I'm a follower of Christ? I'll give you an example, and I mentioned this before. You take it for, for what it is. You getting into a car or going into a home of somebody uh, for whatever reason, I understand there are certain situations, whatever, you've got to kind of think through. But if you are practicing the habit of getting in the car or being alone with someone that is not your spouse, that action in and of itself is not evil. There's nowhere in Scripture where it says, do not be alone with your, a person that's not your spouse. Okay, that is the opposite gender. But is it avoiding a form of evil in which somebody could perceive you as doing something that may hinder your testimony? You know how people are. You know how people jump to the wrong conclusions. Now, I'm, I understand there are certain situations in which you, that, yeah, that may have to be the case. I understand work and all that. Like, I'm not saying be completely crazy about it. What I am encouraging you to do is that in every decision that you make, you have to think about the repercussions of that decision. Am I maintaining my testimony? Some of you have worked jobs that are secular in nature. They have nothing to do with Christianity, and you understand the intense accountability that come along with that. The Apostle Paul says here to abstain from every form of evil. So as we close out this book here this morning, my prayer is that your heart has been encouraged through this. You take all these like rapid fire points and you're like, all right, I received God's word. I abstain from every form of evil. And you're applying that to every area of your life for the sake of growing to be more like Christ. So how can we sum up this entire book into one simple phrase of what the Apostle Paul is trying to do through this book? I believe it can be summed up like this. Christ is coming back soon, so keep building for the kingdom of God. Christ is coming back soon, so keep building for the kingdom of God because our time here is short and there's work to be done.